We are continuing our study in the book of John. Last week we saw the very first sign or miracle in the book of John, the wedding at Cana. And then this week, right in the very next passage, Jesus goes and famously uh, righteously loses his temper in the temple and drives out the money changers and those that are selling the, the oxen and the lambs. And uh, J.C. Ryle, a famous um, 19th century bishop, says this, to attend a marriage feast and to cleanse the temple were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his first coming. To purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be among his first act when he comes again. And this is what we long for. We long for the return of Christ. We long for the wedding feast. But in the meantime, we are worshiping him uh, not face to face. And this passage kind of deals with worship. We've been singing and talking about worship. So let's look together here at chapter 2. We'll look at verses 13 to 23. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you have given us access to worship you through your Son, and that though it is costly, it is free. And I pray this morning your spirit would open our eyes to the beauty of being your sons and daughters and longing to worship you and be with you. Lord, I pray it would not be drudgery. I pray it would not be something that is stagnant, but it would be something that we feel alive and longing for every day of our lives. Amen. Um, this morning I feel a little bit like I need to do something different in that we need to talk through a lot of these words and concepts in this passage before jumping in to like three points. Um, so I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to spend just a few moments um, unpacking what's really happening in our passage, and then I'm going to give not three full points, but just three applications or thoughts. Uh, and I want you to, to kind of have this on your mind. Why is Jesus getting angry? I mean, that's really the question that's dominating this passage and I'm going to give you sort of a tongue-in-cheek answer to start with. He doesn't like our stagnant worship. That's my tongue-in-cheek answer. There's more to it, you'll see. But here is Jesus coming to you know, his father's house, and he sees what's happening. And I think it creates in him a passion, a zeal, to reform the worship. 
And that zeal, I pray, would carry into our congregation, into our own lives as well. So just to kind of unpack some of the things, the, the passage, excuse me, starts with the word, or the term Passover. If you'll remember in the Exodus, uh, right there in the second book of the Bible, it had been 400 years, Israel had grown to a, a large nation, and God is going to rescue his people. He's going to bring them out, but Pharaoh has them enslaved, and so he uses these plagues. And each time there's a plague, Pharaoh seems to relent, and then his heart is rehardened, and he says no, until the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And that death uh, has been warned to Pharaoh. He, you think he would heed the warning, but he doesn't. So God gives the command to the Israelites to take a, a sheep that's unblemished, and sacrifice it in each household and spread its blood on the door, on the doorpost, the lintel, and the angel of death will pass over those homes and not take their firstborn. And so from that point on, Israel is to celebrate that, that uh, rescue, that redemption, that they, they were not killed. And so we have now, thousands of years later, in Jerusalem, the celebration of the Passover, and they're all coming together, um, only this time, Rather than bringing sheep and oxen and other or the pigeons from their homeland, they get to show up and buy it right there in the temple. Um, it's very simple. It's very easy. And so they do that, but it takes away from some of um, the process of what, what makes worship beautiful, and that's what we're going to talk about. So what I want to do now is um, I want to just kind of unpack this, this idea of Jesus getting angry. Uh, Jesus, this is not his first time in the temple. We know that as a child, for example, he was at the temple. Remember his parents left and then they couldn't find him. They come back and they find him in his father's house. Uh, Three different times John records a Passover feast. So Jesus is fully aware of this practice. So when he comes in and sees this, I'm not sure that in that moment it just crosses his mind for the first time to to sort of lose his temper. Right? But rather, I think it's a prophetic act. He made, it says making a whip of cords. Uh, Sarah Barnes and I talked about that. Did he make it like right then? Because it is an interesting verb, right? Did he, you know, did he just kind of stand in the corner and weave a cord, possibly? Or maybe knowing what was happening back home at Bethany, in the, in, every day he would weave it. We don't know, but it was something he would process. And when he comes into the setting, he enacts a prophetic act of judgment on their worship. Like he's driving them out. Now, he's not hurting anybody. Um, I would call it constructive conflict. Why? Because uh, they say, give us a sign for why you're doing these. No one does that. When someone's trying to kill you, you don't say, give me a sign. So there had to be some sort of moment where once the effect had taken shape and, and the courts were empty, they have a dialogue, and they ask for this sign. So that's sort of the big picture of what's going on in our scene. And just to remind you, Jesus is zealous for this place and for this worship, and that's what we're going to unpack now as we go. And so the three things I want to walk through, um, excuse me, forgive me. I want to talk about worship for a moment. Uh, there's a book by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. I think the term worship especially in a setting of worship, can create tension. Like, am I doing it right? Do I like worship? But every one of you is a masterful worshiper, right? We're all excellent at worshiping what we love. And what James K. Smith says, the liturgies of our life, that is 
the ebbs and flows, the things we do daily reveal the things we love, right? And worship ultimately is, the, is, is loving something and caring about it. And so what is it that gets your heart? What is it that gets your attention? What is it that gets your focus? Because I think what Jesus sees in this scene are people going through the motions of right things. Sacrifice, Passover, duty. But they've become stagnant. And so my hope would be that we would see this and we would begin to get a glimpse of maybe how we also struggle at times with becoming stagnant. And Jesus is walking into a temple that he says is one day, someday going to be his body. He is the Lamb of God. And he is saying this is far greater than what is being demonstrated here. So let's, let's pray that even now as we embark on this discussion, we would begin to see his zeal for worship infect us by loving uh, worship well. And there are three things we're going to look at. Number one, when you love to worship, you don't cut corners. Okay? I'm, I'm sort of, my, these are silly t- uh, points. These are like the way they sound. I get it. Do you cut corners in your worship? Um, why do I say that? They show up um, to the temple, and that's where they get to buy the animals or the, or the pigeons or, or change their change. And by the way, the changing of coins, um, the Jews have been dispersed all over the known world at the time. They're coming back in for worship. They bring m- tons of different types of coinage. And so to have the temple tax, they, they change it out right there on the spot. Um, it'd be like a modern-day ATM of some kind. Um, but used to, they would go across the valley for, to buy their animals. And they would, so you'd show up. No one's saying that you should have had your animal. You can leave your homeland, travel to Jerusalem. But the question is, why do you have to wait to buy it like right at the temple? It's like fast food, right? It's like, I'm just going to wait until I'm starving and then I'm going to get the closest thing available. And what that does is that creates a very bad form of eating. Um, Right now in our culture, like we're starting to recapture the thought of cooking. Some of you love cooking and you love to watch cooking shows. I visited with someone this week who plays a video game about cooking. Who's played that video game? Okay, don't raise your hand if you're the person I talk to. Um, anyway, we love it. And I, we watch cooking shows. Some of you buy knives and buy, buy <laughs> utensils to cook. And you want to know how it's made and, um, and processed. And then contrast that with the guy I saw on the Colbert Report years ago who said, I drink every meal. I just drink the meal. It's like a shake I'm never going to eat again. Like there's this contrast. Modernity would say, being modern, let's just get rid of prepping food. And yet we're starting to recapture the beauty of buying food and knowing where the food comes from and, and the pre- preparation of the food and the eating of the food. And so in the same way, worship is something that should be kind of hard, should be challenging at times, right? It shouldn't be drive through And so when you look at the Psalms of Ascent, for example, there's a series of Psalms starting around 121, called the Songs of Ascent. And each of these psalms progress a, <clears throat> a, a, a worshiper through the, the steps of worship. And you can just, each one takes a little bit of a different angle and they get closer and closer until you're at the gates of the temple opening up. And you see this process of moving closer to God. And so when you come to our passage, it just seems to be cheapening it when... Um, you 
like unpack your clothes, you check in at the hotel, and you walk up to the temple, and there's where you buy the animal. It's too easy. And I think we have grown that way. It's, it's interesting that um, with, in other areas like food, we've, we've, we adopt the idea of, or athletics, no pain, no gain, etc. But somehow with worship, we still think the easier the better. I don't really want to, I don't want, this is, forgive me if this sounds legalistic, but I don't really want to like hold a Bible or read a Bible or spend time studying or when I do read a passage and it doesn't immediately make sense, I just need someone to tell me. I, 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 we kind of start to cheapen worship. Right? We want to come in and it, we want to be entertaining these new churches that build screens, like huge gigantic screens in the sanctuary. Nothing wrong with the screen, right? Right, Dan? But I do want to just, as we start to build in this discussion, think about our, how are we trying to make worship too easy? I think that's one of the issues Jesus has in our passage, that he comes on the scene and he sees a people who are in an entire system economically set up to make it almost too easy to sacrifice an animal. If you think about sacrifice, I've spent a lot of time meditating on what would it have been like to like take a, a little lamb from your own stall, you know, and, and travel with that lamb to Jerusalem and to go into the courts and to the priests and participate in the slaughter of that baby lamb. Might you be wondering how you relate and what the lengths someone's gone to to ca- capture you? And so worship includes that, and I want that to be our first thought. Second thought would be worship is also to be missional. Uh, Most commentators think that the area of the temple where these money changers have gathered and these uh, those selling the the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons um, is what's called the court of the Gentiles. Something that's very hard. I didn't even know until I'd gone to seminary. It was just um, there was a class where I learned this, and it's still profound, but that God, and it speaks to our own hearts, that God is a missionary God even in the Old Testament. I'd sort of grown to think in the Old Testament he only cared about the Jews. But when you start to study his goal and what he longed for with the people of God was to reach the nations. Abraham, the father of many nations, where he puts Israel is right in the, in the, in the place where all the countries would follow and flow through. God has always wanted to bless the entire world with the gospel through the Messiah that would come from Israel. And so when they gather in the courtyards of the Gentiles, it's sort of like they're saying, we've shut that off. We're not really interested in missions. Now, if you question, like, is that really going on? The very next place, John talks about Nicodemus. And what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the nations. God so loved all tribes and tongues. God is a missionary God. And not only for different people different than you, but when the gospel starts to infect you, when you start to know that you're forgiven, you'll actually start to care about people in your midst. Again, I mentioned um, we're all willing to do hard things for worship. We're also missionaries in things that we love, right? I read a joke recently. Um, How do you know Someone's a vegan. They tell you over and over and over. You can insert CrossFit, right? John McConnell, 
who love to tease CrossFit people. You all talk about CrossFit. I'm saying after I hear about essential oils and being in an RV, like, I'm bashing John. He's not here. You can let him know. What is it about us that loves to talk about the things we love? That's how we're built. So this is not saying get out there and evangelize. It's saying maybe you've lost your first love. If you're not talking about Jesus to people, maybe he's not meaning that much to you in your life. Maybe something has happened and we've lost a sense of what it means to come and worship. And so this passage is a reminder and what Jesus is going through in this process is a reminder that there's a great cost and a great reward uh, in worship. And when we experience that and when we've been set free, right, when that lamb's blood is spread on the door and the angel passes, we just heard a helicopter, you know, a plane. Can you imagine hearing the weeping and knowing you have been saved? Like that is the rescue you've had. And if we had that cure for an illness, we would tell people. I remember seeing a video from uh, on Penn and Teller. If you all watch YouTube videos, Penn, the guy that talks, not the one that doesn't talk. Penn talks, Teller, quiet. They're, ma- they're magicians. But he, he, it was after a show, and he's just sitting there with tears in his eye, and he says, first of all, I am not a Christian. I'm an atheist. But after my show, someone waited around to tell me the gospel. And he said, you know what? At this moment, that hasn't changed my mind or my heart, but why does not more people do that for me? And he starts to just go into this long, beautiful, passionate speech. If you believe that I'm going to hell and you've been rescued, why would not every Christian that comes to my show try to talk to me about it? And it's just this beautiful reminder that when we've received the cure, we will tell people in our lives appropriately, carefully. I'm not just saying you're going to, I mean, there's a whole slew of methods, but do we even think about it? Are we missional? Does our worship drive us to that? But where I want to spend the remainder of our discussion is, does our worship create in us a longing to be with Jesus? I think a lot of what was happening in that time, and just from what few sentences we have, was not a quite the robust um, glory that you see at Sinai or at the Passover before it, where, where God is saying, I'm your father, I'm when, I want to be with you, I want to know you. It seems more transactional. And so Jesus, seeing this, longs to create a worship that is much more intimate than we have. Um, and so we come to the place where they say, after they've walked out this constructive, well, um, response. So they say to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And it's a really interesting question because what we're told in verse 23 is that he's been performing miracles and will continue to perform miracles all around there, uh, there that week and in those, those days. But what he says to them is shocking. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John tells us the Jews say that it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it in three days? What they are referring to with that temple, I want to remind you, Solomon built the first temple. Then it was destroyed in the exile. Ezra is part of a rebuilding process of what's called the second temple. Uh, And then most would agree that Herod 
uh, helped build this one, which is sort of a second temple re reconstructed. It's the same one that, because it wasn't completely torn down, but it took 46 years to do. And they were very proud of it. Now, you don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore in the Holiest of Holies. So there's some negatives. Um, but it's still very much a place where they go to worship. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus actually wants it to be refined. You know, I, we talk about this. When Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, my thinking is, you know you're going to raise him from the dead. Why are you going to cry? Jesus weeps, right? And the answer is because even though he's about to do this great thing, it's still in the present moment a tragedy that he's dead. Death is real. Well, in our passage, you could argue, Jesus, why are you so angry? Why are you trying to reform Old Testament temple worship if in a little while, a few years, you're going to be the temple? And it shows that he's zealous for the hearts of the worshipers. That, that he recognizes that when he takes over and becomes the temple, which we're about to talk about a little bit more, that it's our propensity to go through the motions and to not long to be with him and to not long to have that relationship with him. And so he says, tear this down and in three days it will, I will raise it up. He's saying, I'm the temple. I, Jesus Christ, am the fulfillment of this building. Now, what happens in the temple, right? The Lamb of God is slain. He is saying, I am the access for you into the holy places. One of the things about the temple is at the very middle was the holiest of holies, and there was a curtain. And only one person a year could go in, the high priest on, on Yom Kippur, Kippur. And even then, it was like, is he going to die? It was a threat. And the rest of the, of the people are waiting to find out. And in Hebrews 10, Jesus tells us, well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus um, has given us, he says, since we have the confidence to enter the holiest places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh. So what you find is that in Jesus, we now have absolute access into the holiest place. Now, what do you find when you get into the holy place if you have the blood of Christ? Do you have a father looking at you like this? There you are. You've made it. Is that what you envision? That's what I envision. I mean, I, sometimes you just kind of say, you know, Here's the lamb, here's the sacrifice. We're gonna celebrate a couple blocks that way, you know? It's gonna be really great. We're gonna have mom's gonna make this and that, you know. And that's not what God's doing. God is saying, I wanna welcome you in to my bosom. Worship is coming in and having intimacy with the Father. In Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah in a, in a vision seeing something like the throne room of God or the throne room of God, and he hears the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. But what he sees and what he experiences is so profound, right? He's, he's transformed. He's, he's sanctified by the, the, the angel, and he says, uh, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's confessing sin. He sees how glorious God is, and then God says, who will go? And he says, send me. Here I am, send me. He's ready to go into mission. There's this a beautiful transformation that happens. And my question to us is, are we excited to be in the presence of our Father? Or as, as Eddie so eloquently reminded us, Jesus, who is God. Do we love to worship him and be with him? And will you put Colossians 2 up? 
Dan, uh, Colossians 2, I just want to talk about, um, we studied this a few months back, starting in verse 13, Paul says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross. The cross has these two sides to it. On one hand, it's horribly gruesome and grotesque and tragic that Jesus has to die on the cross. On the other hand, and we talked about this last week, it's incredibly rejoiceful that we have a Savior who has taken all of the sin and the guilt and, and taken it on himself. The Father put all of that onto Jesus. You are completely forgiven. What would happen if you believed that even for three minutes, that you were completely forgiven, that there was nothing in you, that you were absolutely the apple of your heavenly Father's eye. It would transform you. I had a, I've talked about this from time to time, but Jeff Thompson, a mutual friend with the Shidlers, we were having a conversation in Japan, and I don't know how, why it hit me, but when he just said, what would your day look like if you walked into the throne room right now and, the, and, and God told you he loved you and, and just, poured his love on you, and then you kind of away, wake up, and here you are back at your day. Like, would you be the same? I, I think we would be different. And I want to know, why don't we think God loves us this way? And I can't help but think we continue to live by the law. We continue to let our conduct and our record be our justification before him. And he is saying, it is clean. If you are in Christ you are completely clean, and you are loved. Do you believe that? I got to go to RUF this week, and Shane did a beautiful job, and I'm stealing one of his illustrations. I actually went back and watched it. Uh, any of you see the, the scene of the uh, Down syndrome man who's probably in his 30s coming off the escalator from an airport? He'd been away for five days or so, and he comes around, and there's his dad who raised him, and, and they just embrace have you all seen this? You have to see it. Shane will text it to you. He comes around the corner, and the dad's standing there, and, you, and he just walks up, and the, and the young man just begins to put his head on his father's head and his hands on his father's hand, and the father's holding him, and then the, the young man starts to kiss his cheek. And the, you can hear people videoing, oh, I guess he didn't have a great time on the trip. You know, they're like trying to, this is cute. And he's just like doting on his father, kissing, just massaging his face. Does that sound familiar? The woman who was kissing Jesus' feet, that's what your father does to you. See, I think in that video, it's backwards. I think your father loves you. No one can love you more than your father loves you. You can't out-love God the Father. You can't out-love Jesus. You can't out-love the Holy Spirit. And so if your vision of God is not doting on you, we have stagnant worship. 
We're going through the motions. And what I think this is reminding us, Jesus is driving them out. He is saying, I have zeal that you and I would rest in the fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in one, three in one, love you, hold your face, and kiss you and dote on you. And it's so crazy to think that he's doing this because what will you do? What do I do to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. It's the blood of Christ that has given you that access. Do you believe that? That's where the heart of worship comes from. If you are struggling with stagnant worship, which we all do, it's because we are holding on to some way of measuring ourselves that is not by the blood of Christ. Right? We, are, we are walking up to the temple and we're just paying money and, and we're, I don't need that pigeon. I can afford a lamb. We're buying the lamb and we're walking over with our pride and we're handing that lamb to the priest and we're going through the motions. And Jesus will have none of it because he is the lamb. And he loves you. Receive that this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for our stagnant worship privately, corporately. The affections of our hearts have wandered to things that we think complete us. And yet you kiss us and you dote on us and you care about us. Let us receive that. Let, the, let that melt us. Let that heal our marriages, heal broken relationships, heal our parenting. We need your spirit this morning through this message, through the meal we'll take in a few moments to remind us freshly that you indeed have taken all of our sin and wiped it clean. And we are now white as snow. Amen.